The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Turn in your Bibles to the verse that Topher just read, Revelation twenty-two twelve. We're going to focus our attention on this verse. In the fall of 1722, Jonathan Edwards, then a mere uh, teenager of 19 years of age and a religious prodigy in almost every regard, came at an early age to understand the Christian life better than almost anyone that I've ever studied. At age 19, set down a challenging set of resolutions that would guide the rest of his life. Now, this was a common practice uh, in Puritan New England. It was done by ambitious and high-minded people, and then kind of spread over into colonial era. George Washington made similar resolutions, and Benjamin Franklin also, but theirs were much more worldly and pragmatic, rules of self-discipline, For achieving success in this world, basically their generation's version of seven habits of highly effective people. Edwards' resolutions are a masterpiece of godly determination and holiness. And of making the most of every moment that we have in this world. Now they're all worth studying, but I want to focus my attention this morning to begin this sermon on resolution number 22. Jonathan Edwards wrote this at age 19, resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can, with all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, even violence, I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. Wow. It's amazing. Edwards was determined to do whatever he could in this world to maximize his happiness in the other world, that is in heaven. This is a revolutionary thought. It really can affect the rest of your life every day. How we live our lives in time will affect how we enjoy eternity. Edwards speaks of endeavoring to obtain happiness in heaven. That speaks of deeds done, of works. Furthermore, he expects that it's going to take everything he has to obtain maximum joy in heaven. Notice that he speaks of pitching in all the power, the might, the vigor, the vehemence he has. Really giving every moment of energy, totally consumed at every moment, pouring out all the power of body and soul toward this one end. And then he adds the curious word violence. As though he expects that this obtaining of maximum joy in heaven will take a war on earth. As the Apostle Paul at the end of his life said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Edwards expected that obtaining maximum joy in heaven would be violently opposed every step of the way by those ancient foes of our soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Anyway, that's what Edwards thought. 
and he thought it as a teenager. As I think about this church, and I'm so grateful for the the beautiful multi-generational diversity he's given us here, godly elderly saints and godly teens and, and even, even at a very early age. I, my heart is for all of you to make the most of your time on earth. I'm not giving up on anyone, no matter how old you are. But I do have a special word for the youth of our church, for teenagers, for college students, that you would make the most of your lives. Resolve to do this now. Edwards thought that this was an appropriate way of looking at life, but was he right? I'm not here this morning to exegete Jonathan Edwards. Was he just a Scottish rationalist philosopher mystic from the 18th century and you can kind of just discard his outlook? Can we actually prove by scripture that our works will affect our heavenly experience? Well, I believe that we can prove it by Scripture. This morning, I actually want to assert that I believe that Edwards' 22nd resolution was based on a true understanding of many verses of Scripture, not just one or two, that show that our works as justified saints, as forgiven saints, people of God who have crossed over from from death to life, from darkness to light, we have come to faith in Christ. Once we have done that, our works will actually affect our heavenly experience. And I want to call on each one of you to maximum spiritual effort. I want to ignite within each of you a godly ambition to use the rest of your life well. A fire that will result in maximum spiritual and physical effort for the glory of God for the rest of your life. Now, no book of the Bible so clearly talks about, depicts our life in the next world as does this book we've been studying, the book of Revelation. And especially the final two chapters of this incredible book of Revelation, Revelation 21 and 22. And this morning I want to focus our attention on verse 12, what Topher just read. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will repay everyone according to what he has done. So Christ is coming soon with his rewards. Notice the promise that he asserts. Behold he says. I'm coming soon. So as though the veil is being pulled back, behold. This is referring to the second coming of the king, of King Jesus. And when he comes in breathtaking glory to punish his enemies and reward his servants, that's what he's asking you to think about. Behold, that's coming soon. I am coming soon. Now, most of the book of Revelation, as we've been studying all along, has depicted what he will do, what terrifying, dreadful things he will do to his enemies. But these last two chapters speak of what he will do for his servants. So let's get this promise in context. We're in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation means unveiling, a pulling back of the veil, so that we can see invisible spiritual realities present realities of the, of the resurrected, glorified Christ moving through the seven golden lampstands, ministering to local churches just like this one, all over the world through every era of church history. Present realities of God enthroned, 
that you can see Almighty God sitting on a heavenly throne of glory, and he's surrounded by 24 other thrones with elders and, and living creatures and 100 million angels. Present realities of the Lamb of God, triumphant, looking as if he had been, he had been slain, having redeemed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Present realities, invisible spiritual realities of the devil and his angels, of demons who are constantly assaulting the people of God in this world. You can see all this in the book of Revelation, but also, that's present, future realities. He has made this revelation known to his servants to show his servants what must soon take place. It's a future book, Revelation 1.1. And so we've seen over many, many chapters the future of the progressive unfolding wrath of God. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And also beyond the second coming of Christ, the, the future new heaven and new earth, the new Jerusalem, and what that world will be like. Now he's saying, behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will repay, repay Everyone, according to what he has done. He actually says this, the final chapter, he says it four times. He says it in verse 6. He says it in verse 7. He says it in, here in verse 12. And then in verse 20, one more time, as if we had somehow missed it. Oh, that you hear this. Behold, I am coming soon. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. To which John, in Revelation twenty two twenty immediately replies, amen, come Lord Jesus. Now, the word soon may be perplexing to us. It's been 2,000 years, but we've covered that. Second Peter 3, with the Lord, a day is like 1,000 years. 1,000 years are like a day. The word soon is meant to make us as servants who don't see our master every day, don't see him with the eye, to make us perpetually vigilant in his service. That we're ready at any moment for him to come. It actually affects the way you live your life at every moment if you've got that expectancy that at any moment he could come. We're continually alert, continually active, continually aware. That's what the word soon should do for us. And he says when he comes, he's going to bring his reward with him. Now, I believe we could talk negatively. You could say this, this verse could be taken as a positive, negative. Is it a warning to his enemies? I'm going to zero in on it being a, a reward for his servants. That's what I'm going to do. I could do both from verse 12. But I'm going to zero in on the reward aspect. So this brings us right to the doctrine of Christian rewards, the theology of rewards. And notice how he intensifies it in verse 12. I will give to everyone according to what he has done, according to your works. Now the word reward, mistos in the Greek, it, it's like salary. It's a concept of pay or salary. It always has to do with recompense or something given back for deeds done. It is never used in reference to forgiveness of sins or reconciliation with God or justification. Never. As a matter of fact, Paul vigorously separates the two in Romans chapter 4. After having asserted in Romans 3 the glowing center of the gospel, but now a righteousness from God has been revealed this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that is made right with God, declared not guilty by God, forgiven of sins by God, justified by faith 
in Christ. God presented him as a propitiation, a sacrifice that takes away the wrath of God through faith in his blood. He said that in Romans 3. Then in Romans 4 he said, what should we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Listen carefully to what he says after that. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. Same Greek word, wages, misthum. All right? His wages aren't a gift. They're, they're what is owed to him for his service. However, to the man who does not work, but, but, but trusts in God who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited him as righteousness. You see how as far as the east is from the west, he separates forgiveness of sins from works. We cannot be forgiven of our sins by our works. And I just want to stop and say, I just, I've been praying for this moment in the sermon. I know that God must have brought some people here that are as yet unforgiven. You're on the outside. You, you know you're not a Christian. You're here as a visitor. I'm just telling you right now, if you even want to go to heaven at all, it's not going to be by works. I'll talk more about that in a moment. But if you want forgiveness of sins, all you have to do is trust in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for sinners like you and me, and who is willing to take your wickedness and your sins on himself and die under the wrath of God so that he could give you his perfect obedience to the law of God, his righteousness as a gift. And in that, you'll stand on judgment day. Forgiven of all your sins. And in that righteousness, you will walk on into, the, into heaven through the gates of the new Jerusalem. That's how you get to heaven. Let me be very clear about that. However, beyond that, beyond justification, there is the possibility, it's openly taught, of rewards for service done. Having been justified, you can store up rewards as it says in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, Jesus said. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Do you hear that? Great. So it's like there's smaller rewards, medium rewards, and great rewards. So it's, a, it's like a dimmer switch of level of reward. Great is your reward if they pound on you and beat on you for my sake. If you're a martyr for my sake, rejoice and be glad because you have a great reward in heaven. There's an entire chapter devoted to this, and that's Matthew 6. That's the key chapter on rewards, I think, in the Bible. There's a lot of other places, but this is coming right from the lips of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He is actually very zealous in Matthew 6, that you not lose your reward here on earth by going for it here on earth. He wants you to have a reward in heaven. So he says in Matthew 6, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before people to be seen by others. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't be, don't be like the hypocrites who stand up on the street corners and pray and everyone can see them and say, oh, what a godly prayer warrior. But when you pray, go into your room and close the door and pray to your father who is unseen and your father who sees what is done in secret. He will reward you. And when you fast, 
Don't make it obvious to everyone that you're fasting, but put oil on your head and wash your face and, and make, don't make it obvious to people that you're fasting so that your fasting may be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then he says very plainly, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's it, friends. What could you possibly store up in heaven if not rewards? Justification is not accumulated little by little. It's given as a gift all at once. But Jesus said, beyond that, there are things you can store up day after day after day. Store up treasure in heaven and set your heart on it. Don't set it down here on earth. That's what he's saying. Jesus said the same thing in Luke 14. He said, when you give a banquet, don't invite all your best friends and all your wealthy friends and all that. Don't invite all them. I'll tell you who to invite when you give a banquet. Invite the beggars and the lame and the poor, the outcast, the blind. And this is what he said, Luke 14, 14. Although they cannot repay you, you will be, listen to this, repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Wow. There's actually many verses about this. So our deeds actually then will affect our experience in heaven. Now, I want to go back to justification by faith alone and make it plain to all of you how happy you will be just to be there. And we're going to swim in that for a little while. Because it's just so easy to misunderstand this teaching. You will, all of you who are redeemed or will be redeemed by faith in the blood of Christ, you will be infinitely, perfectly happy just to be there. So my primary witness on this is a famous individual whose name I do not know. But you all know him as the thief on the cross. You remember that individual, he was crucified with Jesus. And at some point, God, in his sovereign grace to this sinner, gave him a vision of who it was that was being crucified right next to him. Who he, who he is, who he will be. The coming, resurrected, glorified king. How in the world did the thief on the cross know that? God showed it to him. And the thief turned and said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. That's faith. And Jesus said, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. On what basis does that man get all of his sins forgiven? He had been storing things up his whole life. Romans 2 says he was storing up wrath every day of his life. Wrath. That's all he had to the moment they nailed him on the cross. All he had was wrath stored up. All of that removed. All of it. What treasure did he have stored up in heaven? Very little. He made a few comments and died. <laughs> his hands could not move. His feet could not move. He wasn't going anywhere. He wasn't doing anything. He was justified by faith in Christ apart from works. And that day he was with Jesus in paradise. And I would go beyond that perfectly happy. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. And he'll be there in a resurrection body, perfectly happy. So there is a heaven we will all enjoy equally. What is, what is that? All right, Revelation 21 says, 
verse 1 through 4, I saw a new heaven and a new earth and the new Jerusalem. And it says in verse 3, Revelation 21, 3, Now the dwelling of God is with people, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Friends, we will all enjoy all of that equally. Every saint in heaven will exist forever in the presence of God. And there will be no more curse for any of them. They will all be in immortal, glorious resurrection bodies. They will all see the face of God. His throne will be there in the city and his servants will serve him and see his face. And they will all drink from the river of the water of life flowing clear as crystal. And they will all have the right to eat from the tree of life and the right to go in and out through the gates of the new Jerusalem. And they will see that radiant city. They will see its glory and its beauty. They will see all of the colors and perfection of that place. All of them will enjoy that equally. These and countless other blessings of our eternity in the world to come will be deeply, richly, eternally satisfying to all the redeemed. Equally. But this sermon's about differences. I want to zero in on differences between the saints in heaven. And I'm going to zero in on four briefly. Some saints will enjoy more rewards than others. Some saints will enjoy more glory than others. Some saints will enjoy more authority than others. And some saints will enjoy more of God than others. First, some saints will enjoy more rewards than others. Jesus, as we've seen, urges us to store up treasure in heaven. And he sets no limit on how much we can store up. And he's also told us with the widow and her two copper coins that we're going to be probably pretty surprised on Judgment Day how much he valued certain works. But she gave everything she had to live on. So that gives us a clue on, on, on some of the rules here. Sacrifice, the level of sacrifice. Every cup of cold water given to one of the servants of the gospel, Jesus said, you'll never lose your reward, even the smallest things. Now, we know that these rewards, it's all by grace. You must know that. We don't deserve to be rewarded. First of all, all of our good works were done by the power of Jesus in us. He's the vine, we're the branches. If we remain in him and he in us, we will bear much fruit apart from him. We can do nothing. So, all of our rewards are his. That's why they cast their crowns before God. Because they're saying, all of these things, you did it in us, it's yours. Now, you may say, what are the rewards? Simple doctrine is praise from God. Praise from God. The most famous text on this, the one that everyone knows, Matthew 25, 21, the parable of the talents, the five talents, the two talents, the one talent, you remember that one. Both the five-talent guy that went out and got five more, the two-talent guy that went out and got two more, they both got the exact same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. That's praise from the master. Praise from your father. Praise from Jesus. Well done. 
verbal commendation with, I think, symbols of it as well. God is saying, I am pleased with what you did. Another clear text on this is 1 Corinthians 4, 5. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Those are the three words that I'm saying are the rewards. Praise from God. Not praise for God. You'll be doing that plenty. And he'll deserve all of it. We're talking the other way around. He will praise you. Jesus said in in John 12, my father will honor the one who serves me. Notice also in the parable of the talents that the master invites the servant to enter into his joy. In other words, since the moment you went into your room and closed the door and prayed to your father who's unseen, I have enjoyed that. And now I want to share that joy with you. I want you to enter into the joy I had when you did that. I'm going to share that with you together. Now you may ask, well, what's rewardable? This is where I shorten the sermon. I've shortened this a lot. I could preach a long time on this. But I think there are, I think I'm at this point saying four criteria. Everything done for the glory of God. Everything done by faith in Jesus, like a vine abiding in the branch. You're relying on him. Everything done in obedience to the word of God, where you did what you were commanded to do. And everything done with a loving demeanor. Love is patient. Love is kind. You could give all your money to the poor, but if you're not loving it, if you're not a cheerful giver, you won't be rewarded. Those are the four. So, when Jonathan Edwards said he wanted to obtain as much heavenly happiness as he could, I believe that was 100% nestled within his relationship with God. I want my father to be as pleased with me and my life as he possibly can be. And I want him to express that to me. I want him to tell me about it. I have in my room a drawer full of artwork my kids have done over the years. It's packed. I need another drawer. Actually, I'm working on a second drawer. The artwork is of varying levels of quality. But it's precious to me because my kids did it because they love me. It's relational. That's what these rewards are. They're relational. My question is, how much of that do you want in heaven? How many such expressions of I was pleased with you when you did X do you want? Secondly, some saints will display more glory than others. We're all going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. We're going to be radiant in our resurrection bodies. Matthew 13, 43. The righteous will shine like the sun. But Paul also said this about the resurrection body. Star differs from star in glory. Some stars are just brighter than others. Some are bigger than others. Some shine more radiantly than others. Friends, if you, all you have to do is study church history. You know this is true. Some, some brothers and sisters in Christ just shine more than others. They did more for Jesus. They just are more radiant and glorious. And it's going to be displayed forever in heaven. Not every star shines equally brightly in the night sky. And so it will be at the resurrection. Some people are going to shine more brightly than others and be adorned with more symbols of their glory than others. Thirdly, some saints will enjoy more authority than others. Positions of authority. I was saying, as I was sharing this with uh, some friends the other day, uh, I was a a teenager, and he was saying, so this is like not socialism. It's like, that's that's right. (laughs) It's not all, everybody's equal. There's some aspects, we are all equal. But there's some differences, and there are going to be positions of authority. The 24 elders sat on 24 thrones, and they had crowns. 
It's true they cast their crowns down, but don't think of them as casting them away and they never saw them again. They are their crowns to cast. So forever they're acknowledging that, like, put it like it was me, my crown is yours. So it's mine to give, just like your money when you give your tithes and offerings. It's yours to give. And so it's their throne and their crown. It's real. You remember when James and John come hiding behind their mother? Remember this story? And the mother goes up on behalf of the sons, James and John, Lord, give me whatever I ask. Blank check. No, no, what do you want? (laughs) All right, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Jesus said, you, said to them, you don't know what you're asking. It's a profound statement. Then he said this, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? We can, they said, having no idea what it was. Then Jesus said, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right and my left is not for me to grant. Those places are for those for whom they've been prepared by the Father. Do you notice Jesus doesn't deny that they exist? He doesn't deny that there are positions of authority in his kingdom. They're real. What he's saying is, do you know what it's going to take to get there? And when the ten heard about it, they're indignant with the other two. Remember that? And they got all upset. And Jesus teaches them a lesson about authority right there. He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercised authority? Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right, put it all together. You want to know how you're going to get positions of authority in heaven? Suffering service. The more you suffer in service to God vertically and to your brothers and sisters horizontally, the higher position of authority you will have. It's not that they don't exist. It's just that's how how it happens. The ones that gave the most... In service to others, they will be rewarded. Fourthly, some saints will enjoy more of God than others. Jesus said, the measure you use is the measure you'll receive. Jonathan Edwards, in a sermon on Romans 2.10, and then another one uh, at the end in 1 Corinthians 13, heaven is a world of love. He gives an image here of God in heaven as an infinite ocean of himself. Infinite ocean. And we, the saints, are all like vessels completely immersed in the ocean. None of us has the whole thing. He's an infinite being. We don't become infinite beings when we go to heaven. We'll always be learning God. There's always more of God to take in. But here's the thing. The vessels are of different diameters. And every saint is completely full, but not every saint is equal in their fullness. Some saints just have more of God than others. They see more of God than others. And no one, Edward said, no one will be dissatisfied for, and this is a direct quote from Heaven is a World of Love, each will have as much love as they desire. That's a very provocative statement. How much do you desire? You actually are setting your measure now. The measure you use is the measure you'll receive. So honestly, this is a call for heavenly ambition. Now, a number of years ago, as I was preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, I came to... Matthew 16, a very famous statement. What would it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what would a man give in exchange for his soul? And I came across a short story written by the Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy. It was written in 1886. James Joyce called it the greatest short story ever written. 
And Tolstoy was writing it to warn us against earthly ambitions, against greed. That was the purpose of the story. And it settles on uh, the focus of the story is a peasant named Payam. And Payam was frustrated with his economic level in life. And he wanted to get more, but he knew back then in Tsarist Russia in the 19th century, it all came down to land, how much land you had. He, he said, I've got to find some way to get more land. And he tries a, very, a variety of things, but then he hears from a friend that in the, in the distant east, beyond the mountains, there was a tribe of people called the Bashkir people who were selling land at an incredibly low rate. And it was good land, good for farming and for cattle and whatever. You should, you should go there. So he sells as much as he can, Payam does, gets a thousand rubles together, and he travels hundreds and hundreds of miles to the east, across the mountains, and he comes to the region of the Bashkirs, and he meets the, the tribe and the tribal chieftain, and they, they confirm it's true. They're selling land. He said, well, what's the price? And the chieftain said, our price is always the same, a thousand rubles a day. I said, well, what does that mean? It doesn't make any sense. I thought you'd say, you know, for a certain number of acres. He said, no, 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 a thousand rubles for as much land as a man can walk around in a single day. But here are the rules. You have to walk, not use a horse. And you have to start and end at the same spot and before the sun goes down. Or you lose all your money and whatever land you've walked around. So he can't believe it. He's like, but a man can walk around a huge amount in a day. He's like, well, then you'll have a huge amount of land. Well, that night he can barely sleep. He's so excited. And he starts the next day, gets up before dawn. He's up on a hill with, the, with the, a lot of the, the tribe the Bashkir people and the chieftain, he's ready to go. Sun hasn't risen yet, but it's almost there. And he can see the land just looks beautiful in every direction. But particularly toward the east, it looks really good. So as soon as the sun rises, the chieftain throws his cap down and he's off. And he goes down the hill. And the rules were that he had to take a spade with him. And as he was going around, he would mark the boundaries by digging a hole and piling up the dirt. And that would be his land. So as he's traveling... Moving along, he, he can't believe how good the land is. Now, for you 21st century American people, picture like someone running the bases. That's how it's helpful for me. First, second, third, home. And as he goes from home to first, as he travels, the further along he goes, the more beautiful the land is. It looks richer and richer. And, and he's just about to dig his first hole, but, but there's another like little river there and, and, a, and a bunch of fruit trees, and he's got to include that. So he just keeps on going. Finally... He realizes, I might have bit off more than I can chew here. So he digs a, a hole and he makes his first turn. As he's moving along now, now the sun is pretty high at this point. Maybe even past noon. He hasn't even dug the second hole yet. And he's getting hot. He's taking off his coat. He's taking off his, his backpack. He's got the spade. He's drinking water. He's trying to make it through. He takes a brief break for lunch. And he's like, I've got to get back. So he digs the second hole. And now he's moving. Now the sun just starts to accelerate, it seems. It's moving fast across the sky. And now he's actually very worried whether he's going to get back or not. He digs his third hole, and he can see in the distance the hill where he started, but it's getting late in the afternoon. The shadows are long. And so he drops the shovel, and he's pretty much jogging. He's going as hard as he can, but he's not in great condition. He gets to the base of the hill, and as far as he can tell, the sun has set. And he throws himself down on the ground. But they call down. We can still see the sun from here. Don't give up. And so he gets up, and he's laboring, laboring up that hill. It's everything he can do to get there. And just before the sun sets, he grabs the chieftain's cap. He's made it around. And the, the tribe goes crazy. Like, how in the world does a man get that much land? It's the most they've ever seen. 
problem is there's blood coming out of his mouth. Paim is dead. And here's where Tolstoy's genius comes in. The name of the story, how much land does a man need? About six feet to bury him head to toe. It's a warning against earthly ambition. So that's how I preached it years ago. But as I was thinking about Edward's resolution, it flipped on me all of a sudden. Listen again to the resolution. Resolved to, to endeavor to obtain as much happiness for myself in the other world as I possibly can with all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, even violence, that I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. And I fear that in this comfortable 21st century West, American Christian evangelical scene, there are some spiritual payhams that go up right before the sunrise and they bring a lazy boy recliner with them. And as the sun comes up, they stretch and they say, boy, what a beautiful land this is. They don't move. And they watch the, the sun go up and they say, you know, around about mid-morning, they pick up their shovel and they go down the hill about 80 feet, 100 feet, dig their first hole, move on over, dig the second one in good order, third one is no problem. They're back in their lazy boy before lunch and they have a good lunch. I would give everything I could that you not live your life that way. It's not just one day. It's how you live every day. It's a, just an approach to life. I would stimulate you to ambition by asking you this question, how much heaven do you want? Not how much land does a man need, but how much heaven do you want? Because the beauty is, if you run this race with endurance, you give everything you have, and you die for the chieftain's cap, and you die, you then get your reward, your inheritance. You've not lost anything. It's all waiting for you. So this is a call to heavenly ambition, to run the race marked out before you with endurance, to store up heavenly treasure, to redeem the time because the days are evil. A, a, day, a call to do daily good works as unto the Lord, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. You can store up treasure with an average American life, living it for the glory of God. That is absolutely true. Holding down a job, secular job, raising your family to the glory of God. I'm going to talk more about all this in just a moment. But all of these things, you can store up treasure in heaven. But I'm asking, is that all you want? Could I not challenge you to a heavenly ambition, to something higher and better? Not that you would quit your job or move your house, not that, but just a whole different way of looking at the remaining days, months, years you have here on earth to relentlessly run. Like Paul said, I beat my body and make it my slave, lest after I preach to others, I'll be disqualified. That's a call to holiness. I'm going to press toward holiness. I'm going to put sin to death in my life by the power of the Spirit. And not only that, Paul says, I count my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Those are the two, two journeys, the two races. The race for holiness in 1 Corinthians 9. The race for evangelism in Acts 20. I'm going to run this race. I just am calling on you to run your version of those two races. I want, I want you, especially you young people, I want to challenge you young people, college students, youth, but all of you, really. In the 1981 movie, Chariots of Fire, 
the master of King's College in Oxford, 1919, year after the Great War ended, used the sober image of the war list on the wall of that college. Those who were boys who had died in World War I, their names. He used that sober image to motivate the incoming freshman class to exertion. That's what he said. Let me exhort you, examine yourselves. Let each of you discover where your true chance of greatness lies. For their sake and for the sake of your college and your country, seize this chance, rejoice in it, and let no power of persuasion deter you in your task. Well, that is thoroughly secular speech. But I want to capture it and say, okay, where does your true chance of greatness lie? How has God gifted you? What's your passion? What's your ambition? Do it and let nothing stop you. What great thing is God calling on you to do? What are you ambitious for in a good way? Romans 15, 20, Paul says, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not named, so I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will hear. Paul's word ambition there is an amazing word. It's used three times in the New Testament. It's literally love of honor. In other words, it's like he's saying to Jesus, I would love the honor of going and winning some lost people for you. The honor that would come back to me for doing it. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, same thing. We make it our ambition to please God. That's for everybody. I would love the honor, O Lord, of pleasing you today. So what is your love of honor? What is your ambition? Maybe some of you it would be to be a missionary to an unreached people group. There's 400 unengaged, unreached people groups that imb.org has, you might be one of those that it would be called out to win them to Christ. Or, or maybe God would call on you to, to into vocational ministry in which you're planning a church in some North American city. Or maybe he's calling you into a pro-life ministry or another kind of ministry to the poor and needy, a mercy ministry. Maybe some of you have academic writing gifts. He's called on you to use that for the glory of God. I don't know. My imagination only goes so far. God has a vast imagination. And he's gifted you and he's going to call you to do great things. What, what is your path of true greatness? What is your ambition? What, do you, what would you love the honor to do? And then the third use of the love of honor is very interesting. Very different than Paul's trailblazing frontier church planting approach. Listen to this one. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work hard with your own hands. Just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So that would be like a homeowner who's holding down a job and doing it for the glory of God, providing for his family, and trying to win outsiders who are watching his life. That's an ambition too. They're very different callings. But what is your love of honor? What is your love of honor? What do you want? What will you want to stand holding on judgment day and to be evaluated for? How much heaven do you want? Close with me in prayer. Father, thank you for this promise that you've made. Lord Jesus, behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will repay each one according to what he has done. I pray that you would give us a passion, O oh Lord. Help us to find out what you're calling us to do, what you're calling on us to be ambitious for and to do it for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.